There we go. Hey, as you come back to your seat, if you would have a seat right where you are. Or maybe not right where you are, but when you get back to your seat, you can have a, uh, have a seat there. Now, you might be thinking, hey, it's a little bit early in the uh, gathering to, uh, to have the sermon, but shockingly enough, there's nothing in the Bible that says this is exactly the order we have to follow uh, in, a, in a worship service, and so we like to, uh, to change things up a little bit from time to time. So we're going to study Scripture together right now based off those first two songs we sing, leading us into this time of studying Scripture, and then we're going to come back at the end, and we're going to sing two songs together, not grab your purse and put your keys and your phone into, we're, we're going to sing two songs together in response to God's word, to how he's leading us this morning to think about this topic of holiness. Kids, it's the first Sunday of the month, it's Labor Day weekend, so we don't have our children's church time, we don't have our Elevate this morning. Here's what you can do, kids. We're going to talk a couple of times, I'm going to tell you a story a couple of times about the Grand Canyon. If you've got a good Grand Canyon drawing that you can do during the uh, service, I'd love to see that afterward. Also, the passage that we're going to study this morning that you're going to hear about is something that you can draw pretty easily. I'd be curious to know in your kid mind what you think these verses from the Bible look like. And so feel free to, to draw me a picture. I'd love to see what that looks like. We're starting a new sermon series around the topic of holiness. Contrary to popular opinion, but I was really close to it, I didn't wear holy jeans today, um, so some of you got my email this week asking if it was okay to wear holy jeans to, to church, and I would say the short answer is yes, as long as they're appropriate. As a guy, there's a very, very short period of time in your life when it's okay to wear jeans with holes in them, and I mean really short, and there's, there's a lot of circumstances that surround that that even make that okay. Um, so I, I most definitely, one time I did preach in jeans that had holes in them only because it was the only pair of pants I had with me at the time, and I was asked to preach at the very last second at this place, and I looked down and realized that was all I had, so I just, I just went with it. But we're talking about this concept of holiness. Holiness isn't the catchy title that you put out there to attract a lot of people to come. It, it doesn't win for popular, but I think it does win for important. When we think about holiness, we think about that phrase, holier than thou, that, that holiness is for a separate set of Christians. That's great for them. I'm just trying to make it day to day. I'm, I'm not a holy person, but is that really what Scripture says? When we think about holiness, sometimes it is as surface level as the clothes that we wear. Like, that person dresses nice, so they're a holy person, but I, it's just not who I am. I wear jeans when I preach, you know, that, that type of idea. Is that what holiness is about? Obviously, there's more to it than that. What we're going to start with this morning is in order to understand holiness and how that impacts our life, we have to try to grasp, or at least grasp at, understanding the holiness of God. This is one of those topics that you try to speak about it, and you skip over your words, and you stumble over descriptions because when we're talking about God's holiness, we realize that that is beyond description. But you do have a picture in the Bible that I think is very important. Isaiah chapter 6. If you open your Bible or open your phone to Isaiah chapter 6, that's where we're going to begin. 
If you're not comfortable knowing where Isaiah is in your Bible, people say if you open your Bible to the middle, you come to Psalms. I always come to Isaiah. I don't know. It might just be my copy of the Bible. But if you try to open to the middle, you're going to get pretty close to the book of Isaiah. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. If you got a copy of one of those bulletins as you were coming in, and, and you like a little structure or framework, and you want to turn that over on the back, you can, you can follow along there on, on the back as well. What we want to do, we're going to read the first seven verses of this chapter. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the content and, and ultimately try to cover the whole chapter this morning, thinking about this topic of holiness. Isaiah 6, verse 1, here's the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Let's pray. Father, as we slow down in our lives, as we slow down in this worship service right now, God, coming before you in worship, looking at your word. Father, I know we come in here with a lot of things going on in life. People sitting at home watching who are at home because of so many things going on in their lives right now. Father, I pray that this portion of your word would speak to us in a powerful way. God, there might be a lot of things that we think that we need as a church, but what we need more than anything is to catch a glimpse of your incredible, overwhelming holiness and glory. God, I pray that if people are here this morning and they just feel like they're in a spiritual drought, they don't know where to turn, they feel lost, it took a lot of effort just to make it here this morning, God, I pray that you would remind them of your power and your glory. God, I pray that there are people here this morning and they're not even sure if they believe in you. They don't know if they want to follow Jesus or not. God, that they would replace maybe a very low view of you with a very high view of your power and glory and that you would draw them to yourself. God, use these verses in our church in the days to come as we think about holiness. God, thank you for the kids and families that are here, God, that you would remind them of your power. And Father, we want to respond to your word in the way that we study, the way we pray, the way we sing. And we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I used this story um, when we were going through our Colossians sermon series, but I'm going to take a shot that, number one, maybe you weren't here. Number two, it crushes me, but you probably don't remember everything I say, um, so you may not remember it. And number three, you'll play along. So uh, when I keep... When I, when I get to the point of telling the same stories and I don't remember that I told them, then we'll be in trouble, but for now, just go with me. So, 
Not long after Amanda and I were married, we were living down in New Orleans, and we had come back to Oklahoma City because we were in that stage of life when all of your friends are getting married, and it gets very expensive because you have to attend all these weddings and, and be a part of what's going on. So we'd come back to uh, Oklahoma City to be a part of a wedding. At that time, there was a hurricane, not Hurricane Katrina, but one of the earlier season hurricanes that year that was coming toward New Orleans, and so they had canceled our classes and canceled our jobs in New Orleans. So we were back in Oklahoma City, didn't really have anywhere to go at the time, didn't particularly want to spend any more time with our parents um, at that point, and so we needed to figure out what to do. And Amanda says, let's go to the Grand Canyon. Now there's, you know, that's a whole bunch of hours in the wrong direction at that point to get to the Grand Canyon. We have no money. We have no reason to go to the Grand Canyon other than the fact that that's the way my life, my wife lives, that we're in Oklahoma City, our home is in New Orleans, let's go west to the Grand Canyon. And so we grabbed a tent and we headed west to the Grand Canyon. We drove all night, we took turns, we drive a couple hours, almost fall asleep, get the other person to drive, drive a couple hours things you do before kids. And so we made it there to the Grand Canyon, and you drive up there, and you go past all these booths of people that are selling things to you, and you come around the bend, and there it is, this incredible God-created wonder of the world. And so we walked along, along the rim. We, we even kind of walked down just a little bit into the canyon. We came back, and whew, a couple of hours had passed, we we're like, well, that, we made it. <laughs> we, we saw the Grand Canyon, and then 30 more minutes passed as we tried to figure out what to do to do next, and there was still the Grand Canyon in front of it. It still looked great, and then we realized we had no plans at that point. We had made it to the Grand Canyon, and it was great. It's a big hole in the ground that's really awesome, and you drive a long way there to get, and after a while, you just feel like, well, what do we do now? So we pitched our tent, spent the night, drove back to Santa Fe the next day um, and, and hung out for a little bit. Here's my, here's my concern. Sometimes I think our experience with God's glory and God's holiness can be a little bit too much like our experience at the Grand Canyon. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's nice. That, that seems really important, but... Is that all? Like, what do, I, what do I do with that? Or worse yet, worse yet, we look at God's glory and say, ah, okay, that's all right. And then we drive, we drive away. What you see in Isaiah chapter 6 is the exact opposite of that. Look, look back at Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's not a throwaway line, Okay. In the year that King Uzziah died is in some sense a summary of chapter 1 through 5. We talked about this this past Wednesday night at, at Emmaus, and so I'm not going to go into a lot, a lot of detail. It's on our podcast. If you're curious about that and want to jump in there, you can listen to that, that Wednesday night as we tried to set the stage for this. But King Uzziah had reigned as a great king for 52 years over the people of God. 52 years as a great king was very uncommon for the people of God, for that kingdom. But he had reigned... And then he got to the end, and 2 Chronicles 26 says, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. 
Let that sink in for just a minute about the way that describes our lives and the way that describes our world. He grew strong, he grew proud, he was destroyed. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. You see, even if you were the king, you didn't just go strutting straight into the presence of God any way you wanted to. But his pride had gotten to the point that he was no longer in awe of the things of God. I'm keen. I've been in charge for 52 years. I've done a good job. I can do whatever I want to. And man, pride is dangerous all the time, but religious pride is especially dangerous. When you approach the things of God as if they're light, as if I'll do whatever I want to, I've gotten used to the things of God, so it no longer holds any power over me. There's King Uzziah in that situation. But look what happens. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah, what happened to him? He saw the Lord. The king is dead, the Lord lives. The nation is in mourning. What's about the Lord? He's sitting on his throne. 100% of politicians and leaders will come off their throne, will come out of their position. Leadership in the human realm is so temporary. And our lives are not dominated by who is in charge of a political realm because that will come to an end. But God remains enthroned as the king of kings. And he's at peace, and he's in control, and he has all power and all sovereignty and all dominion. And so when Isaiah's circumstances are falling apart, when the nation is in mourning, when Uzziah has died, what are we going to do? Who's in charge now? Who's in charge now? He saw the Lord sitting on his throne. He's still in charge. That hasn't changed. It's that lesson from the New Testament about when we're focused on the storm and our eyes are on our circumstances, everything feels out of control. And the moment you look at Jesus, you realize, oh yeah, he's in control. He's at peace. I look at him and he's still in charge. Sitting upon a throne, what kind of throne? High and lifted up. This is not any regular human throne. This is a throne that is out of reach. This is a throne that is greater than any other. It's not like I look at the Grand Canyon and then I remember there's the Mariana Trench and then I remember there's Mariner's Canyon on Mars and oh yeah, I thought the Grand Canyon was really great but there's so many other greater canyons out there. No, this is, I looked at the Lord and he was high and lifted up. He was out of reach. This is when you're the tall person and you try to get a little kid to give you a high five and however hard they try, they can't reach your hand. High and lifted up, out of reach, greater than any other. He's able to see everything that's going on. Nothing is outside of his view, outside of his control. He's high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. So, so just the very bottom, the very hem of his robe fills the temple with his beauty and splendor and power. There's a dual connection that we're going to come back to here in just a second. So don't miss it here because it'll become important in verse 3. But in verse 1 here, you have the throne high and lifted up. So you might be tempted to say, oh yeah, so that God is out of reach. He doesn't care about me. He's beyond me. Sounds important. Doesn't have anything to do with me. But the 
hem of his robe fills the temple. He makes his, his splendor and beauty known to his people. So really high, but he also comes down to show his power to his people. Why does that matter? What's the, what's the meaning here? What's, what's going on here? The sense that you should get from verse 1 is this awe-inspiring, overwhelming sense of God's majesty and power. There's a good chance that sometime recently in your life, if not within the last week, good chance within the last year, you've used the phrase overwhelmed. Or if you didn't say the word overwhelmed, it reflected what you were thinking. I'm overwhelmed with life. I'm overwhelmed with finances. I'm overwhelmed with school. I'm overwhelmed with my job. I just feel overwhelmed by the circumstances that I'm facing. Here is where Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 can be so helpful and such good news. When you feel overwhelmed by the circumstances around you, when you feel like, I don't know that I can take any more of this, remember that those overwhelming circumstances are overwhelmed by the overwhelming one. The image of Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 is that the power and majesty of God overwhelms the entire universe, the entire situation that Isaiah is facing. So next time, let me give you a little, I, I don't mean this to be cheesy, I mean this to be Isaiah chapter 6 important. The next time in life you catch yourself saying, I am so overwhelmed, say, that's right, I am so overwhelmed not by these circumstances, but by the greatness of my God. Let me be overwhelmed. I, I, I will be over, my, circum, my overwhelming circumstances will be overwhelmed by the overwhelming one because he is in charge, he is in control, he is all-powerful, and he has made his beauty and splendor known to me. And so am I overwhelmed? You bet I am. And I've never felt better because I know who is overwhelming me. Verse 2. Above him, you say, whoa, whoa, you said nothing was above him. Hang on. It doesn't mean above in power. It means above in the sense of, of serving him. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Oh, seraphim. I know those, those are angels, cute, cuddly angels. Not quite. The word seraphim means burning flame. It means flame. So don't, don't misunderstand this. These are not little angels with wings floating around the throne of God. These are flames. God's holiness. Fire often in the Bible is a picture of holiness. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. God puts flaming swords to protect his place of holiness. Uh, the, the lights of Gideon's lamp, the flames there are, are flames of holiness. The burning bush that Moses encounters, scene of holiness. So, so fire in the, in the Bible is often a theme of holiness. So you have these flaming powerful beings here around the throne of God, and it says each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Even these beings here do not look directly upon the power of God. It's a sign of reverence. With two, they covered their feet. 
Again, probably a sign of reverence, maybe a sign of they're not going to go anywhere of their own initiative. Their feet are covered until they're told to do something. And, and a lot of uh, Eastern or Middle Eastern cultures, uncovering the feet can be a sign of disrespect. Uh, so there may be some of that imagery going on there. There's a little bit of debate about what the exact meaning is there, but it seems to have to do with reverence. So with two, they cover their eyes. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they flew. They were given directions. Notice what they don't cover. They don't cover their ears. Their ears are open. Eyes are closed, feet are covered, ears are wide open. God, you tell me where to go, and we're going to go. We're going to go and do what we're told to do. Verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That three, uh, three-time repetition there of holiness, it was common in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. It was common in Hebrew to get a word repeated twice. Uh, the word gold in your Old Testament is often repeated twice. You would get gold, gold. means fairy gold. Super, it's a way of saying something was great. Almost never is anything repeated three times. It, it's like saying the bestest. Good, better, best, bestest. Um, you repeat something three times, it's out of reach. Nothing is as great as the thing that you're talking about right here. It's transcendent. So holy, holy, holy. How do you describe holiness? Uh, well, when you start to talk about God's holiness, one of the things you run into is you say, what does it mean that God is holy? Uh, well, it means that he's God. Okay, well, that's not particularly helpful, except that's a really great illustration of, of what we're trying to get at. The word holiness is a word, and we're going to talk about this a lot over the next few weeks, but it's a word that means separated from, separated from something in order to be dedicated to something else. God is completely separate from all of his creation. Remember, when we talk about God, we're not talking about a God that somehow infuses creation or comes out of creation. We're talking about a God that is separate from creation. So he's beyond and greater than any of that. But he is devoted to what? Well, in a perfect sense, he's devoted to himself. And I know that that might come across sound, sounding wrong, but what else is God devoted to? He's devoted to showing his greatness, to showing his glory. That doesn't make him prideful. It makes him God. So he is holy in his core inner being. But the second phrase there in verse 3 says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Remember we talked about his throne being high and lifted up and then his robe filling the temple? That's exactly the idea in verse 3. Holiness is God's glory concealed, separated off, greater than any other. His glory, though, is his holiness revealed or manifested in the world. So, so when we talk about his holiness, we're talking about his core being, what separates him from all else. But he reveals his holiness by making his glory known where? Over all the earth. Is he holy? absolutely all the time and he shows that holiness to us by displaying his glory in the world what does that what does that mean how do we kind of grab hold of that here's one of the things it means one of the things that it means is that when we talk about the god of the bible 
He is not the big man upstairs. And he is not just a higher power, and he's not just a grandfather, and he's certainly not just a co-pilot. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the king of the universe. He is the judge of every ruler who will ever sit on a throne. He is father to the fatherless. He is the savior of the weak. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. You get that wording often in the book of Isaiah. So many times, if we're not careful, we approach God as if he is not holy, as if he is not all-powerful. And I prayed earlier, and I want to say again, there's a lot of things we probably need at Emmaus. There's a lot of things I probably need. But what we need more than anything is a vision of the blazing, overwhelming holiness of the God who is worthy of all of our worship. Because if we grasp that even a small part, to know his glory and his power and his rule and his authority and his love, that changes everything for us when we begin to grasp that. If you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're saying, you know what, I'm really not a worshiper of God, but I, I respect what goes on here. Let me throw something out to you. Maybe, I'm not saying this is your situation, Maybe the reason you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're not a worshiper of the one true God, is because you've been presented a God that is frankly too small. Maybe the reason you haven't followed after Jesus Christ for your life, you haven't given yourself in worship to God, is because you think, why would I give myself to that God? There's really not much there to offer. That's not much greater than what I have going on in my own life right now. And so if we could do something for you, it would be to say, look at Isaiah chapter 6. We're sorry for the false, lowly God that we set before you at other times. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Is that the God that you have come face to face with? Because when you see that God in all of his holiness, and you see that God in all of his glory and all of his power, then you come to that point of saying, okay, how do I respond there? What is my response to that sort of power, that sort of rule? As God's people, we have to think, why that kind of God is presented there, it's because a lesser God would never work. (laughs) Isaiah is in a bad situation. He doesn't need a lesser God. He needs the God of Isaiah chapter 6. Look what happens in verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. There's a lot of flames, so it's not surprising you're getting smoke here, that his glory is being made known. Sometimes you get the word Shekinah that's used for the glory of God, that overwhelming presence of God at work here. Verse 5, what does Isaiah do in response? He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How do we know, how do we know that we are able to come face to face, not face to face in the sense of a direct, but how we come before this God? Okay, go back to the Grand Canyon for a minute. Imagine that you go out there to the Grand Canyon. 
it gets to be night, and you look up, and there's going to be this incredible array of stars, and then huge spotlights come on. Somebody says, look, 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 look. You can see the Grand Canyon so much better now. We've, we've brought spotlights out. What happens at that point? All those stars, not visible anymore, are they? Because these spotlights have come in. I remember, so I grew up in the southwest part of Oklahoma in kind of a rural area. I can remember my parents calling the local electric cooperative to come take out our streetlight because they were so angry that a streetlight had been put in that took away our view of the stars. Um, so that's the idea of where, where I came from. You get this artificial, man-made, lesser glory light that comes in and it's close to us. And what does it do? It washes out the glory of looking up at the stars at night. Take that as a connection to what we're talking about here. One of the reasons that we don't always see God's glory and all of his majesty is because we have these little man-made lesser lights all around us. Are they like the glory of God? Not even close. But Romans 3.23 says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have taken this incredibly beautiful portrayal of God's power and glory and we set up little spotlights all around us. And now we're not able to see him because we're overwhelmed by these things around us. But when Isaiah is able to see the Lord, when his eyes look on the king, what happens to him? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. That word lost can also be the word silent. I am a man of unclean lips, meaning I could not give the praise that those angels gave earlier because I know that my lips have boasted of myself and not of the Lord. I know that my lips have been full of hypocrisy. They have said one thing and done another. I know that I'm unclean. I come face to face with my sin. And we realize, right, that our concept of sin is often too small because our view of God's glory is too weak. One of the ways, one of the ways that you can start to tell that your view of God's glory is opening up is when the sense of sin in your own life grows. Not in a beat-yourself-up shameful way, but when you start to become aware of how short you fall of God's glory, and when you start to become aware of the overwhelming pain of sin in your own life, it's a sign that you're starting to catch a glimpse of God's glory because you realize, oh my word, I was making light of the sin in my life. I was just letting it slide because I had lost sight of how great and holy he is. So what happens to Isaiah here? Well, verse 6 says, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. Uh, we can't get a good feel of this part of the story because we know the way that it ends. But remember... <laughs> burning angel, burning flame of an angel, coming with a burning coal that apparently is so... When you're an angel made of fire and you have to use tongs to pull the coal out of the, the altar, we're, we're talking pretty serious heat. Um, it was hot at the football game yesterday. Felt like this was happening. This was not that type of heat. This, this is more than that. 
Isaiah does not say, oh goody, when he sees this coming, does he? Like at this point, he's seen God's glory, he's seen his sin, here comes a burning flame of an angel with a coal. What does he think? I'm done. Like, this is, this, I'm going to get what I deserve. But what does he get? He touched my mouth in verse 7 and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. He sees God's holiness, he sees his own sin, and then here comes this burning coal from an altar of sacrifice, and it touches his lips, and he's cleansed. His sin is taken away. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what God does for us? Leviticus chapter 19, there's a verse, or 17, there's a verse that ties in. Speaking of sacrifice, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it, to you, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement. Atonement is a word that usually means covering, it's a pretty complicated word, but generally it means to cover or, or even sometimes to take away, to make atonement or covering for your souls, for it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. When you get to the New Testament, especially in the book of John, 1 John, Hebrews, all of these ideas are tied into the sacrifice that Jesus made. We recognize God's glory, we see our sin, but then we see this hope for forgiveness. How do we respond when God's glory is put in front of us? I want you to go back to that guy, Uzziah, that I mentioned in, in verse 1. Look at this next screen for me just a second. How do we respond to holiness? Remember Uzziah, he walks in, he grew, he grew proud, he grew strong, he walks into the temple where he's not supposed to be. Second Chronicles 19 says that after he was confronted for his sin, Uzziah was angry. So don't miss the purposeful contrast, okay? Because this is key to this whole story. Uzziah grows proud and sinful, and he is confronted with the holiness of God. And what does he do? He becomes angry. He becomes even more prideful in the midst of that sin. What does Isaiah do when he's confronted with God's glory and his own sin? He says, woe is me. These are the two responses to you being confronted with God's glory and your own sin. You can say, double down on my pride. I'm angry that a God like that exists. I don't care that the preacher says that. I'm going to continue to resist. That, that becomes one option. Or I can never for a second stand before a God that great. And I realize the depth of my sin. And my only hope is to call out to him and pray for his forgiveness, to pray for his healing. Prideful religion, I'm going to hold on to this myself. Humble repentance, my only hope is in this great God who has come to us. On your notes, if you got one of those bulletins, on the back, if you have a hard time maybe seeing your own pride and the way that that works itself out in your life, I listed seven uh, symptoms or, or signs of pride in our life. We're not going to walk through those right now because of time. We, we talked about those on Wednesday night, but that list was, was so difficult for me to process through personally, I just thought I would share it with you, so you would have to go through it as well. Um, but uh, 
As you read through those and think, God, where is pride showing up in my life? Like, where, where am I holding on to my small view of you and my great view of me? Did you know, I can't get away from the Grand Canyon, so kids, just roll with me here. We're just going to stick with it. You keep drawing a picture. Um, if you go to the Grand Canyon, and I know I told you I, I kind of lost the the grandeur of it after a couple hours. But if you go to the Grand Canyon or you stand out under a sky full of stars and your first response is, man, I am an incredible person. Like, that's probably not healthy, okay? Like, talk to somebody if that's your, if that's your response to that. When you stand before something like the Grand Canyon or you stand under a sky full of stars, what do you feel? So small. Like, what do I have to give in this? I'm, I'm overwhelmed by what I face and you start to sense your need for something greater. You start to sense your smallness, your weakness in that moment. And Isaiah responds by calling out to the Lord, and the Lord brings that healing and forgiveness into his life. Now, the story doesn't stop there. It keeps going in verse 8. So Isaiah has this humble repentance, but, but look at what he hears. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Now this is awesome. Confronted with God's holiness, confronted with his own sin, experiences forgiveness and healing, goes on a mission trip. Like that's the way you want to respond in in this situation. God's not wasting any time. He says, you have everything you need at this point to serve me. Here's the good thing about this. When you come to understand some of God's holiness and glory, And when you recognize your own sin, and when you experience his healing and forgiveness, no one will have to force or beg you to worship and serve the Lord. Because you are so overwhelmed by his power, and your weakness, and his grace, that the only response that makes any sense at that point is, I will worship him with everything I have, and I will serve him with everything I have. And I don't mean to use that as a guilt-inducing, next time we ask for somebody to volunteer, you better step forward. What I mean is, we won't be able to stop you from serving the Lord. And we will not be able to stop you from worshiping the Lord because you've seen how great he is, how much you need him, and how awesome his salvation and forgiveness and healing can be. And so all we have to do is say, I encourage you, I equip you, here's an opportunity go for it. You know that time where someone just becomes a follower of Jesus and they're so overwhelmed by his grace and forgiveness that you just can't, you have to stop them from doing things because they're just, they want to do everything to serve him. If we lose that a little bit along the way, it's not that God stopped calling us. (laughs) It's that we've probably lost sight of his holiness and power and glory and our need for him and what he does in our life. So Isaiah gets sent on a mission trip. Watch out when God sends you on a mission trip, because here's what happens. Verse 9, God said, go, say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah says, I signed up for the wrong trip. I wanted the one that went to the happy place, and you're sending me to give a really hard message here. Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull. And their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And you've got to feel with Isaiah at verse 11. He says, how long, O Lord? 
Like, how long is this mission trip that I signed up for? Uh, you're going to send me to give that message, that hard, difficult message. How long am I going to do that? Well, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. All right, it's going to be a while. So Isaiah is called to go, but he's given a difficult message when he goes. Here's the two things, we're going to do this super quick, but the, the two things that happen with Isaiah's message. Number one, he doesn't change the hard message. So there were already prophets who were giving an easy message to the people with a weak God. Uh, if you were here last week, remember what George said about Jeremiah 29. There were already false prophets saying, this is going to be really easy, just chill out, you'll be out of here pretty quick. Jeremiah is given a very difficult message to, to give to the people. Isaiah is the same thing. There was easy messages to go around, but he stuck to what the Lord told him to say. Here's the other thing, though, to keep in mind about Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't make the message harder than it should be. When you fast forward to chapter 28 in Isaiah, he gets made fun of by some of the other prophets because he makes his message where even kids can understand it. Precept upon precept, line upon line, word upon word, the other guys come by and say, it shouldn't be that simple. You're, you're, it's a hard message, and he doesn't change the message, but he also doesn't make it more difficult than it should be. And that, that's a good reminder for us as we're sharing the things of the Lord. We don't make it easier because people don't need a lesser God. But neither do we make it more difficult because people are carrying enough shame and pain around with them as it is. And so you present, yes, this God is great, and yes, your sin is terrible, but there's also great grace and forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ, such that even a little kid can understand their need for the things of God. Final verse. We'll wrap up here, and we're going to sing a couple of songs about holiness. Final verse, verse 13. And though a tenth remain, whew, thank goodness, so it's not going to be complete destruction. God always leaves a remnant. Though a tenth remain, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Holiness and hope always go together. A holy God means a hopeful message and a hopeful people. There's a lot of debate about what the seed and the stump are in these verses. Probably the overwhelming opinion is that God would always have a remnant of his people that he would raise up. But there are strong connections as well in this language that tie seed and stump to the coming Messiah, to the one who would come and bring hope and salvation to God's people, pointing toward Jesus. And, and really, remnant and Messiah fit together in all the pages of the Bible, so I think they're probably two in one in this imagery. But the point is that a holy God, even when he confronts the world, when he confronts people with that holiness, it's always hope that has the last word. And when you live in a world of death, and when you live in a world of pain, and you live in a world of darkness and sin, it is good to know that hope has the final word. That when we see God's holiness, a holiness that could devour and overwhelm us, it's not that. It's a holiness that always points us to a place of forgiveness and salvation. Slowly, as we make the transition to a time of singing about holiness, What's your view of God? 
Have you reached a point that maybe in some ways your view of God has lowered? That sin's not that big of a deal in your life? Frankly, you wouldn't say this out loud, but you've grown a little bit dry and even apathetic toward the things of God. Isaiah chapter 6 is one of those things that can bring us back and say, let's turn off the spotlights. Let's turn off the little side lamps that prevent us from seeing his greatness, and let's look there. Because when you look there, then you're forced to look in here and realize, oh my word, I need him so much. And his forgiveness is there. His hope is there. Is he calling you to worship? Is he calling you to trust him for the first time? Is he calling you as a couple or a family this morning to repent and say, we have taken the things of the Lord lightly? Dads, husbands, I know last week we heard from George a lot about this. But think about your family. Think about your home. Do you take the things of the Lord lightly? Or do you say we serve a God who is high and lifted up? And that's reflected in the way we worship, and that's reflected in the way we serve. I don't know how God is working in your lives this morning, but we have two songs that we're going to sing about holiness. And so you have all the time in the world you need. If you need to come up here and pray, if you need to pray right where you are, if you just say, my response is I've not worshiped the Lord fully in a long time, and I'm going to give myself to him this morning. Whatever God's leading you to do, I want you to have the opportunity to do that. Let me pray for us, and we're going to stand and sing together. Father, it's guaranteed, and, and I've probably fulfilled this this morning, it's guaranteed that we could never fully express the power of Isaiah chapter 6 and what you show us in your word at this point. And so, God, we just admit that our words fall short. We admit that the thoughts and our hearts and minds fall short. But, God, we declare that you are great, that you are holy, that you are king of kings and lord of lords, and so, God, forgive us the times that we treat you so lightly. Forgive us those times as a church when we take you so lightly. God, let this be a place where we cannot help but worship and serve you because we are so overwhelmed by your greatness and our own sin, our own weakness is in front of us, but we know that we have been forgiven through Christ. God, I pray for people in this building right now who are completely overwhelmed by the circumstances of life that they would know the good news of Isaiah chapter 6. God, I pray for the people here who are carrying so much shame and guilt because of their sin that they would know that you have brought a way of forgiveness and healing through Jesus Christ, that they would trust you today for that healing and that forgiveness God, use this time of worship, use these songs to draw us to your holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.